In memories of childhood, Temple Ochtrup becomes an enchanted land. It was in the spread of hills round the church, as it's commonly called, that Imanach Nick hunted game, and men on their keeping from Galloping Hogan down to 1920 took refuge. Described by O'Donovan as mountain, pasture and cutaway bog, the church is surrounded by the heights of Nukalak, Mohor, Nukmehil, Nukhnamina, a place of comers and calms, lacans and files, corochs and small streams, a setting where the summers of childhood seem to have been longer, were longer perhaps long ago when words like traffic and hygiene, pollution and higher purchase were all in some far-off future. Motherhood and management were as difficult then as now, but there were little if any tensions rising from the need for prams or playpens, high chairs or pink and blue babies' furniture, or from noise or lack of space, or from the pressing desire to get out and away from it all. But if woman's place was firmly in the home, that home was more central also to the lives of men and children, and indeed to the economy and living style of the whole community. To people's homes came the travelling tradesmen, coopers, tinkers, geese pluckers, pump sinkers, firkin makers, tailors and dancing masters, beggar men and women. And it was the age of the house dance, the wake and the station. All these made the home a focus of life. And in the same degree, to the children of Temple Oak the parish was their world. Temple Moor, Thurless, Bursley were faraway places. And names like Rusheen, Strenon, Seskin, Gutnahalla, Balaboy, Achanboy sprang more quickly to mind. Over in the townland of Achanboy, they could, after all, point to the homestead of that great outlaw poet, Eamon O'Rena Chnick, or Young Ned of the Hill, as he was now called. For after the decay of Irish in the last century, all that was left of his memory were pieces of folklore and Samuel Lover's version, rather sentimental, of what Thomas Macdonough called that untranslatable Eamon which yet we would all translate. Oh, dark is the evening and silent the hour, who is the minstrel by yonder lone tower? His harp all so tenderly touching with skill. Oh, who could it be but young Ned of the hill? Who sings, Lady Love, will you come with me now? Come and live merrily underneath the bough, and I'll pillow your head where the light fairies tread, if you will but wed with young Ned of the hill. Young Ned of the hill has no castle or hall, nor spearmen or bowmen to come at his call. But one little archer of exquisite skill To shoot a bright shaft for young Ned of the hill Who sings, Lady Love, won't you come with me now? Come and live merrily underneath the bough And I'll pillow your head where the light fairies tread If you will but wed with young Ned of the hill Did childhood last long or long ago? Was it a slower process? Was there less hurry to get out of childhood into adolescence? There was certainly no hurry to get boys out of petticoats, and boots and shoes were something to get used to by slow degrees and unwillingly. Well, we leave it at home on the holiday now. The Nicks 
the style as we called it, that was between ourselves and Staples, an old step up and a path across. There was no car or any, just a path through. We took our boots as far as the style, we all discarded them, hid them there, went to school barefooted, and even coming back then, we'd collect the boots, put them on, walk in home again. We'd be going out of that now until May. Well, our parents didn't want us to go barefoot until May. It was dangerous to go barefoot until May. But we had it going on for March. We carried it on along all through the summer. Now, they didn't take much notice towards the end of the year. The brand of boot in that day now was a Stingo boot, and the price of it was 10 Olympics. I remember that. And when you get the boot, you take them to bed with you. And I can well remember the smell of leather under the pillow. The, the boots stuck in under the pillow, waking in the morning, look at the boots again. Well, you continue barefoot in all during the summer. You got the bone lock on the heel. You were supposed to get that from Robin Boar's nest. You broke the toe here. The beast went off under the two pieces under the toe. They were gone, the first partners. They healed up, of course, and welts on your feet have desired. You could run the road, stones, rocks, no difference, thorns, you wouldn't notice them. But I remember now my father used to go gambling out to Bevins. That was a great gambling house in our area. There'd be nine, or nine playing, and there might be six, seven looking on, hoping that they could get in for a game. But I remember in the month of November, coming back in from Bevins with my father, and we had an old mucky boreen, you know, with locks of water on it, no, not like it is now. And I can remember running along before my father, cracking the ice at my heels. Even children of 12 and 13 must seem very big to the child at school for the first time, but how huge the men of 19 and 20 must have looked. For it was the custom at the beginning of the century for boys of that age to continue on at school at times of the year when work was slack on the farms. Now, it wasn't long before this that schoolmasters had had to endure the payment-by-results system, And although dismissal could no longer simply amount to a manager standing at a classroom door and roaring at a teacher to get out, nevertheless, dismissal could still be at a manager's whim. Small wonder, under such conditions, that teachers were often cross and contrary. One wonders how grown men managed to put in a school day under them. They'd be more or less... Creating trouble, a lot of them too, and once it go to a certain thing. But the teachers were very wicked at the time. Very wicked. Because they'd, they'd bring rushes up. They would, now it's a great And thing. then there was an odd man, like everything, uh, good school, they were shoving into men, you know, and they wasn't going to have it. No. Yeah. You see, that, 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 that turned on them, you see. They turned on them. And in cases there were three or four of them joined together. And no harm to turn on them. There are three or four of them joined together and bit the teacher. Mm. Oh, well, there was... It was, was, was what I'd call at the time was this... It was forced education, you know, mm. because you can learn a man a thing, but by God, I'm telling you, when you go to drive him into it, maybe you can't. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Where's this there? And in school until 15 and 16... Oh, and, you know, they were great teachers, and, 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 um, I say, they, 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 um, it was very good when some people used to, maybe till 17 or maybe early seniors, they used to stay going to school, and when they'd be at, when they'd be, um, at second stage of fifth, 
they were they were very good. When I went to school first in Newtown, they were men though. They were men. Yes. The heads of course the whole the Morris. Tom Wilshire Dunbar, James Terry, Tommy Battergot Kelly, Jim Lafton. Jim Lafton, the Trashy the Mohar. They were all men, they were men. Yeah. Briny Khan, one day in school, did something. And Quinn went to hit him. And Briny cut him by the beard. And there was a big window at the back of Upper Church School in there. And Briny was getting getting back to get out the window. And he had Quinn cut by the beard. Quinn couldn't do a thing about it. All he was saying was, let go my beard. But Briny succeeded in edging back with Quinn's beard cut to the open window and hopped out the window and skipped it. It's master in school, master lamb. Mikey Hayes, or the whole of us going, I think it was Trudden Paddy, it was another brother. Yes. But anyway, he put down this soap on the blackboard, you know, there, and you went to the disc with your slate. So I was only a child. They were, they was men, though. They had a slate pencil and the slate doing this soap, and he came, he come behind you then, around about in the disc, and looking over your shoulder to see whether wrong or right, and if it was wrong, oh God, a good. Most of the stick, this is the right horse. He was getting it across the knuckles of the head or any place. Got up to it. Mikey Hayes, I'd say, was able to do with the sum, but he didn't like him. Yes. And he'd done it wrong, I suppose. I don't know, but they, they were saying that he was able to do it right. You understand? Yes, he was a good yes. and all that. Had they got to give him a fierce throwing when he seen it wrong? Would he? And now, when it was all over, he was there and he got to this chalk and he made it up himself outside on the blackboard. You know, everyone had yeah. it to see. Yeah. And some of the slates were big and more of them were small. And the, there was frames on them and the frame was gone on this one. <coughs> and the corner of that slate stood in the blackboard. It's in that length of the master's ear, the corner of it. An oak board as hard as that wall. And the fierce wall. It stayed in it for two minutes and it fell down on the floor. But they did a half an inch which stayed in the board. Now, a flop gun was made from an, 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 an elder tree by taking the, the pit out of the elder tree, making a ramrod of ash, which would be a good strong one, getting ordinary newspapers, chewing it until it became pulp, stuffing one end of this where you had removed the pit, getting a second plug of this pulp, sticking it into the other end, getting the ramrod against your breast and pressing the gun against your breast. There was a, a loud report as the, the plug you had in the off end banged out of the gun with the pressure of the air inside. It wasn't uh, unknown fellas in school to fire them at the, the master. There was one fella that I knew and he, the master was having his lunch one day. And he, he had a flop gun, as they were called, and he, he packed it well. The harder you pack it, the better the explosion would be. And he had a difference of opinion with the master before lunchtime. But he got into the hall, and the door was open. He could see the master, and he aimed well. With practice, you were pretty expert with those. And he banged the, the flop gun and hit the master with the, the pulp paper. Well, of course, it wasn't the hurt, it was uh, the indignity of getting it that 
caused the rumpus with her. That fellow was, he, he got a hyson, which meant he was put up at somebody else's back and his posterior was fairly warmed for him. There was a teacher uh, in it for the catechism before Mrs. O'Doherty, yes. And they used to, a curate come up every year when we were preparing for confirmation, there was the cure come up, giving out the catechism. So, a uh, uh, couple of times a day, she'd go around. Uh, she was afraid, of, nervous of him coming in for the catechism. And for every word of catechism, <laughs> you get six laps. And the hands for every word of the catechism. You'd miss, you get six laps. And even time out of school wasn't completely free. For boys and girls of all ages, there were tasks to do. You had to make sure there was turnips in and pulled in wintertime down springtime for the cows. You had to make sure the potatoes were in. There may be the yard may need to be swept. Yeah, there was no time I had him, no concrete, no nothing, fine, left fine, all muck. All that had to be swept. In summertime then, spring, spring, summer, you'd have to trim hedges and keep things generally in order around the place. The house may need a bit of whitewashing outside because back in those times there was no houses plastered or dashed or any finish like that in them. So the armory lime plaster and the whitewash over it. And the towers had then, of course, being thatched. If the thatch got bad, you had those green streaks coming down the wall. As we used to call it, so-and-so that are selling laces. That's what we used to call the green streaks down the wall, selling laces. The same with the hob here, when the rain came down the chimney and opened fire. So-and-so selling laces today. I used to do it myself for an hour. You go to the garden and bring in all the leaves, a big bag, bring in a, a, a big bag of uh, cabbage, all the leaves, the green leaves, and uh, there was a special knife with a handle in it, a cabbage knife, for uh, cutting up the cabbage on the floor. You'd have a board under the knife, under the leaf of cabbage, and then There'd be a big pot in over the fire, a big pot of gruel, the yellow meal, and uh, the cabbage then, when it was small, to be all cut up and put down uh, in the big pot to boil. And uh, the gruel then, the, the, that's a tickney you know, one, then to be left down, to be left down for about an hour. And then when it would be cooked, uh, to be left to cool and then put out in, in coals, uh, 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 they'd be half a children's like to put all the stuff in for the pigs. I went home to the for my lord to for a two-year-old horse. And I meant to know that you'd be nearly afraid to walk it. Fill the lord of in a creel. You never saw a creel, did you? For the on turf. It was made of lats up about three feet high, you put about a, well filled, you put about a ton of turf in it. But I filled up this and thought I couldn't bring home enough of dry turf. 
And coming out along with my horse, I got turned up. That meant that one side of the car went down like that, and it turned over. But I got the horse out from under it anyway after a long fight. And when I had the horse out from under it now, I had to get all the turf off the car, get back the car, and put the car back on the wheels. The bow pins ran down to the axle and put the car back on the wheels. Now I had the car back on the wheels. I put in the turf again, and I knew I'd get turned. Coming back, I was gone wrong, you see. I knew I'd get turned again coming back. So I tackled the horse to the front of the shaft, to the slyrax. And I said, if I get turned now, and said, the horse won't be under the car. So I got back this way, walked back along nice and gentle, and got down my load of turf and brought it home, off of the mountain. But could you picture a young fella today? Could you picture any father sending a young fella to do that today? Mm. Not a hope. During summer holidays, there was the meadow and the bog, and for boys, if not for men, a shower of rain might be welcome. If the day came with in the bog, what would you do to pass the time when you were in the oh, bog? Oh, yeah. The day came with. Oh, you were asking me about passing yeah. the time, you know. Yeah. This is your uh, mate, yeah. It used to be working in the bog. There were a lot working in the bog, do you know? And uh, I suppose they'd idle a bit too. They'd surely take time off after dinner. And I'll sit down on the banks and tell a few yarns, but... A uh, bad day had come then or something, and we'd shove out to get in the shelter. But I knew there was a man then and he'd uh, go on a sort of a reed that used to grow on the uh, edge of the little stream, and he'd cut it. It was knotted up like a reed so near each other, like bamboo stick, and he'd cut the holes in like a flute and turn around and play it. You know, and when he, maybe a quarter, while it, only while there'd be a shower on. And he could throw it away then, you know. I hear it, because I wanted smoke, you know. But you said, Phil, that there was a pishog attached to it. Oh, there was. Having them inside in the house. Mm. You were never supposed to take him in. Sometimes he'd bring it up to the house, but if he did, I always noticed. No, but I never heard it. Mm. That was thrown out in the dunghill. No. When he was finished or every day, and he'd make a, he'd make bring a new, for, one, he'd make yeah. a new one for the day after. Growing boys needed money, and some felt that they had a right to a small part of the produce of their father's farm. But this particular evening, I hid this barrel of oats, 
I had a soldier on the day. There was a show down here in, in, in Mr. Stapleton's. And we all came to this. Those are the days of the travelling shows, the tents, you see. Everyone was going to this show on the night. So I decided while everyone was at this show, I'd deliver me back of oats. Now, I wasn't able to carry it. I tackled an ass. And I took the ass around through the fields and brought him out in the boree and didn't cross the... I should cross the yard with that, you see. So the car house, as we call it, was this side. So I come right around and out to the boree and had my bag of oats fixed there. Put up the bag of oats and down to Jim of the Mill. Jim was all as reliable as you could find. So I got him for 17 bob I got for it. Came on back and all this was to be done now while the road was quiet and while everyone was at the show. And just at the end of the lane, who did he meet on me and Maggie? Now, she knew we were at that. She knew we were... She knew the girls were taking an odd dozen of eggs. An odd hen to sell. She knew we were taking an odd barrel of oats, but she always kept it quiet. Now this night, my father went out. And that's what she be tied in his own little stall, you see. And he was going out looking at cows, you see. And there was one house, there was four cows in it. The other house there were eight, we had twelve cows at home at the time. But that's what's tied where the four cows were. That's what's gone. So of course he thought the thing out and he said to his own man, that has to done business tonight. He went to the car house, no car. No tackling. The tackling would be just thrown into the car. No no tackling. He came in anyway and he said, Oh, the buyers are onto something tonight. They have that and car gone. My aunt got up. She got out the window, she came out the boreen. The boreen would be a good mile long, mucky boreen. I was coming in along the boreen with me ass delight of myself. She says, you're in for it. What's wrong? You have that, miss, she said. And the car. You go back, I said, and get into bed as quiet as ever you can, and I'll do the best I can. She came back in, and I came along within about 200 yards of the house. I took that from under the car him into a little paddock on the side of the Borean, took the car off the wheels, carried the car on my back, and put it into the turf shed. No, didn't put it in the car, it was into the turf shed. Went back down, took off each wheel off the axle, carried the wheels up one by one, put them into the turf shed. Went back down for the axle, brought that up. Went back for the tackling, brought that back. Put the wheels together, put the car back, and put the tackling into the car. Scheming or mitching was one way to have freedom from both school and work, if you weren't found out. And what must have appeared a constructive approach to scheming and to divilment generally was the cutting of hurleys, for Teumpelochtrach is in hurling country. We met some other pals on the road, and one of them said, I think we'll go cutting hurleys now for the day, see, during the school hours. So I agreed, I was only too delighted for the job. And two other, I had a small brother going, he was much younger than me, and he wasn't equal to this job of going, cutting the hurdles, and we tried our best to get him go to school, but he wouldn't go. However, we had to take him with us. We went. We started cutting down the hurdles all day. And... Uh, because the owner knew nothing about it, the owner of the hurleys. But uh, during the job, we saw the owner of the land coming around, getting down around to get at the right side of us to get us caught. 
course, we had to run. And I suppose we had about 15 or 16 threes, of course. Not very big ones, you know, the makings of two or maybe three hurdles, and only one in some of them. But uh, we got away from him, and we had to cross the river. And there was a lot of rain like that morning, and, and the river was flooded. And this brother that I thought to get to go to school, when he came to the bank of this river, of course, he kicked. He wasn't going to go into it. But I remember I had to catch him and come on. When you didn't go to school, come on into it. So we in, we had to go and got away. But the owner of the land, he wasn't going to follow us across the river. Now, of course, that was all right. We had got away from him. But the trouble was, our clothes were wet and I was, I don't know whether we had boots on or not. Was very wet. But one of the fellas, he said, I will we'll fix that up. He cut down some branches off of a tree and we went around. He told to go around and collect sticks and bits of bushes and so on. We'll make a fire and we'll dry our clothes. We got off the clothes as well as we could and put them up. He made a, over the fire some kind of a, what they call a crane like mm -hmm. we used to have and put the clothes on it. And I needn't tell you they wouldn't, uh, well, they wouldn't very well dry it when they wouldn't burn. However, we got him into shape fairly well and put him on again and came away. But uh, we were watching the clock too, that we'd be home at the usual hour, which we were home. And of course, we were asked the day afternoon to school what happened yesterday. Well, some of them said they had a headache, and more of them said a sick stomach. But it ended at that. But we never had a hurley out of it. They all collected what we had done, and that finished our job. We never. Because wherever a fellow with an interest in hurling went, he always had a, his eye for an ash tree. And if you ever saw the leaves of an ash tree, he'd always come closer to see was there, was there a crook in the end of it. And if there was a crook in the end of it, it was marked down as being the makings of hurleys. And uh, at night time, if, the hur if they thought that the owner of the tree wouldn't give it willingly, well, they went at night time and they cut it and stole it, if you like, and took it to the sawmill down to Mialov to have them cut up into boards and some of the handymen then would produce the hurleys out of the, the stolen goods. Those local boys used to be at our house playing the cards and we knew they were going to cut this hurley. And Michael and Willie shot me if we made it up that we'd frighten them whatever night they'd be going cut it was in a, a lonesome kind of a place. So Bill Clancy and Jimmy Murray and Tommy Kindy <coughs> Was above this noise, and they gone out after finishing playing cards the same noise. Tommy Kindy turned back and he says, Tonight, as he told us. And they were gone about half an hour, we started down after them, and they went after them, and we got into Mrs. Wales and not to Mercy in the room. She brought down a big basket of white seeds. We picked out a couple of them and put them around us, and came on out and dressed up. and. And the boy saw us coming. We had two candles lighting up over our head. And the boy saw us coming. They were hammering away at the old tree. And the moment they saw us, they said, Oh, this, and then hooked it away over the tree. <laughs> and when they started hurling in this area, 
Turles Blues as they were were going strong. At that time in Turles, we say, had got properly equipped for hurling. But the only hurlies improvised that Phil Shelley and Jack Wigley had were two sides of a hames, you know, the timber hames that they about two feet longer, approximately, and the kind of a curve on them, you know, for, for outside the horse's collar. And they got one of these each, you see, mm. went out in the next field and started poking the ball, poking the ball one to one. And even after there was quite a few more. Quite a few more and a few more. And that's how the milestone the team milestone originated. The team originated, you see. They eventually formed a club. And um, you had the famous milestone team. You had a good milestone team then. There was no such thing as junior grades at that time. They had to go into the best one county. And they were able to give them a reasonably good show. In fact, some of them came came to be possible on the county team of the time. And of course, they never had a place to hurl. Because there was no such thing as a level field anywhere. It was, you got the, some little bit of a level bit on the top of uh, the hill somewhere. And it might be only 10 yards wide. But that had to do. The cock ball now, Mick. Well, uh, raveling old stock would be the first thing you see. So you have old ravel thread. And you'll get three or four corks. Ordinary corks of bottles that they used at that time, beer bottles that are here, and uh, fit them into a little cut lump, as say, cut, cut a couple of them on the outside and make them a kind of roundy. Then you wind this ball of thread around them, and you get some cards then, and a uh, pack of needle. That's right, yeah. And you stitch it up away, crisscross, keep going around it, you know, stitch in, stitch out, and wind it up ever so close. Well, eventually you've got it nice and hard. Of course, you'd have couldn't afford a cover. No. You might get, if there was a boot maker around or a harness maker, he might be good enough to write you if you had the time for any covering. But usually we used to manage to do any cover. The ball is quite all right, good for hurling, until it got wet. But you see, the thread, you thread it on a wet ground or puddle place, well, the thread soaks up all the wet in the mud. Mm. And of course, the ball wouldn't go very far. But nevertheless, I done the work, you know, give us a bit of amusement and exercise, and we'd come in good and warm. Uh, the ball was always a homemade one. We often made them. You, you start by getting corks and cutting up corks and getting an old stocking that wouldn't be fit for darning and unravelling that. When you cut one, you could unravel the whole stocking into a ball of wool and you proceeded to roll that around the corks. And when you had a fair-sized ball made, you got a pack of needle and twine, and you stitch that through so that you'd keep the, the thread from breaking off into the hurling. So the hurling ball was always a, a, a thread ball, as we used to call them. And when the first hurling balls, we know them now, came up, we used to call them tan balls. And, and a tan ball and a boldly hurling was a, about the, the highest point of imagination anyone could imagine themselves having because a crook and a, and a thread ball was all we ever knew. They used to call them a crook. <laughs> a crook. They'd be made from a... Yeah, it could be a kind of sally, what they call a black sally, so heavy enough. But it wouldn't be wide like the hurley now. Still round, the same shape as the hurley, but that it would be narrow, down around the, what we call the boss, the hurley. <coughs> but there were plenty of them. Back in the old days. We played hurling at school every day. 
But it was very few fellas had what we called a Bourdie Hurley. A Bourdie Hurley was what one would call now a normal Hurley. What we hurled with were crooks. You went down to the to the valley and you cut a Sally stick with a turn on the bottom of it. And uh, Sally would be fairly hefty and able to stand up to a lot of rough treatment. But we hurled with crooks. I saw lads hurling in school. If you were really stuck, you went over to the ditch and you pulled a, a forest bush out of the ditch. If there was a crook on the end of it, that sufficed. And it was amazing how accurate fellas were able to hurl. Boys needed speed and stamina in their games. But the peaks of skill reached by girls playing jackstones was something that even the boys held in wonder. This game made its way from Asia in ancient times and was known as Five Stones in England and as Scraga or Kraga in the Gaeltacht. In 1862, the famous Wexford folklorist Patrick Kennedy observed schoolgirls at it during their play hour and remarked that the listless little girls of cities seemed thoroughly ignorant of this exciting pastime. Well, it was a game played with five round stones and had various formations and various things to do with the stones. For example, one of the things they had to do was to take five stones off the ground in one hand, throw them up in the air, turn the back of their hand and catch them on the back of their hand falling down. And each phase of the game had a particular name. Now, I can only recall some of them. There was butters as ones, butters as twos, drive home the cows. Those were three that I can recall straight away. But it was something that I often attempted, but I could never do. But it was amazing what girls could do. They, they could do anything with these five stones. To, to remind you of a juggler with, that you see in a circus with plates and that kind of thing, how they can catch them. Well, it was the same with marbles. They could absolutely do anything with them, manipulate them any way at all. And the girls sat down uh, in a ring and they, they played those at lunchtime or in day after day during the summertime. To, to be much like the fella that you didn't see him either. Uh, I saw him at the races, you know. They're throwing three balls, you know them. Jugglers. You know, jugglers. jugglers. Yeah. They have five stones. And uh, I don't think it was so much a game. You had one... There were four of them there now. And you had one in your hand. You throw, you throw up this one, and you move one, and catch the one coming down and leave it in its place, and pick up another one, throw it, and shove that on along, you know, to get them into formation, get them into different patterns and things like that. Leslie Dakin, that great Irish authority on children's games, has remarked on the robust preference in Ireland for all manner of pursuit games. Scarcely a town or village will you find, he says, where varying forms of fox and geese, hares and hounds, spy for riders, hunt the fox, relieve the eye and cockalarum are not generally known and liked. But stone and ball games mustn't have been far behind in popularity. Aladdin and the Magic Lamp from Burton's Arabian Nights managed to become an Irish folktale in the 19th century, and when Michal Tomani wrote it down in 1903, we find Aladdin in the very first sentence playing duck and cat all day long. Well might he have been just one of the boys of Tempelochtrach. Hares and Hounds was another 
game at lunchtime. A couple of good runners were let off as hares, and all the others followed them. Well, occasionally it happened that they went too far and they didn't arrive back at the prescribed time when lunchtime was over and there was always hell to pay then. The, 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 the hares and the hounds got who began it from, from the master when they, when they arrived back half an hour late. I, I knew on one occasion now that they went two or three miles away from the school running. And not that they meant to stay out late, but in the excitement of the chase, they forgot that the time was going, and these lads had to be caught, and that was that. And it was only when somebody realised at least when the hare was caught, well, God, lads, we're late. That the, uh, then the worry would be able to get back, that they come back to sweat pouring off them. Take the ring in the, in the road, and put a line back so many yards, about seven or eight yards. And it had this little bit of a stick, it would be about six inches long. And it pointed on each end. And one man would stand at the ring, and, and the other man, was chap after he'd thrown it, would get his cap. And when the man at the ring had hit the, hit the cat, it would hop up. And if he could get, catch it in his house, you'd be out, you see. You'd have to throw it in, and the other fellow would get a little stick at it. And uh, if he didn't catch it, you'd hit it a tap and hit it off away as far as you could. And give him so many jumps then to bring back the cash that we used to call it. Suppose that went ten yards, you'd give him five jumps to bring it back. And if he didn't, you'd be still in, playing away. When they played spy, which meant somebody going to hide, or playing, as it was known as folly, somebody following somebody else, in order to pick out the, the one who was to take over the, the, the bed, as it was known, but the first game of spies, somebody was to lie down and wait until everybody else was gone. They had various ways of designating who to be. All would stand around in a circle, and the leader would start around pointing at each one, Ickle, Ockle, Blue, Bottle, Ickle, Ockle, out. Well, they were safe, they weren't going to be caught, and then they went back again and repeated it and each one as out was said to them, they were let go. Whoever was the last in would be the one that would have to lie. A stone on the road now, a good stone up on the road, and put a smaller one like a sand of turf up on top of it. Oh, yes, and you And you throw at it. And I forget the rules of it, we'll say. You'll get so many throws to knock off the fellow that would be in position at the pedestal, as we'll say. And uh, if he knocked it off, you had to run as quick as you could to put it up. That was part of the game, do you see? And the danger was, I often wonder how they escaped, because the man below the line, he would have liked to take a shot again there, at the duck again there before you had your hand off it, you see. It was all speed. Well, Kippins, as I said, was one of the popular games at school. Two of the best runners would be selected as captains, and they'd tossed to know which would have first call and each of them would pick the fastest and the bravest lads he could on his team. They took their coats off and they placed them in a line down in the middle of the field. And about 40 yards on either side of the line, they stuck down on the ground five kittens, as they were called. And the object of the game then was, one on one side of the line would run, try and take a kitten from the opposing side of the line, and get back to his own side without being caught. So, 
you spread out in a line along the field, watched your chance until you thought you could make a clear bid for the opposing bunch of kippens. The minute you crossed the line, everybody there followed you to try and catch you. Well, you lured as many as you could of the good runners away. Then another fella of your own team see an opportunity of getting over and getting back without being caught. So it was a game of, of bluff. You lured them away by sending over somebody who was likely to be caught. And while that was happening, he lured them away from the kippens and got the kippens back. And whoever succeeded in getting the five kippens away from one side, back to their own side, won the game. Well, now, if a fellow was caught, he was held a prisoner. And he could be released by somebody going over and touching him and making a bid to get back across the line himself. So you had to get the kippens back and have no prisoners in order to win the game. From Thurless Town to Galtys Brow, all peelers turn pale. When the boys attack the barracks at the call of Grand Well. From hill to hill that winter's night they sped the rifle ball. At Hollyford they did succeed but failed at Thrumban Hall. The rag we need not mention now where we lost... Around the black and tan times, there were battles fought in school. The final demands would fight the Garnagilkas. Now, the, the, there was a, a, at the back of Garnagilka school, there was an old cabin, an old broken down cabin. And the Garnagilkas would take possession of that. And the Philemons would attack them at lunchtime. Now, I can remember going on a Sunday and, and renovating this cabin to have it bulletproof for the next day's battle. It meant stuffing every hole in the place and taking in stones inside. You had a good heap of ammunition ready on the inside. And the lads outside fired stones at you inside. Occasionally a fellow was hit too with stones. But the, the real brave fellow then would, would sneak up on, 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 on all fours and try and get up on the roof to drop stones down. In other words, they were emulating attacks on barracks. There was a valley below the school and the final man's coming to school in the morning would be passing up this valley and they brought spades and shovels with them, cast-offs that they got at home and they went into the valley and they dug a hole into the side of the valley and made a dugout in it and they'd go in there for a quarter of an hour or 20 minutes every morning on the way to school. It was the thing to do and if you weren't prepared to stay five minutes late for school or ten minutes late for school well you weren't a good soldier you were showing a white feather if you didn't go into the dugout but after that during the rest of the week they never used this thing but it had to be done in the morning on the way to school we got an able genius of a nice we, we fixed him and we got the loan of an asses cat and checked him up for an able and through the time of the black and tans we went down the Rumban and over Clarion and up out of the dark road and into Bill Maher's field of Ballycahill where Pat Stakeson was living now. We put the genus inside there. There was an elbow around the haggard that was coming out in the field and we tied him in it. And we were just going away from him. Maher had horses there and there was an entire on him. And before he came on, he'd finished the genus. We had to take out the yoking in on the road 
And we tried to train us outside to Dyerton Gates. Of course, the horse couldn't go through Dyerton Gates to him. And we went up and into Dan Long's orchard of Ballycahan, over at the back. There were fancy trees to pull apples of. There was grand in the road, till ground around them, and all the branches very low. And we came back out, and you know, there was two bursts of apples as far as just where the genus was. When the light shone up through the trees in Castle Forge, there were soldiers in it. Got you escaped. We barely had him opened, and we, we didn't close the gate at all. We didn't get time. I had him going around this elbow with the haggard. That was the way. When and they came about, 20 soldiers in a lorry, British soldiers. And up to the cross of car and turned down by a horror, I suppose, and wrote it to more. So we've never seen us since. We, we pulled out the genus on the road, we shot the gate all right, and came up here ski in Barrack, in the thick of the foyers, the time of the black and trans. With your apples. Well, just it was a, a favourite pastime when we were young lads, they said to go what we call fishing. That was the small stream that's coming down here, you go groping under the bank. The stream now with three or four inches of water, do you see? There'd be pools in that, maybe uh, a foot deep, and in under the lower hanging bank. That'd be the place where you'd find trout. We were quick enough to know where the trout would be. And when you come to this little pool then where the water would be stopped, and the water would be raised up to about a foot, you get down in your face and hands breast on the bank, you see, and take off your clothes and grow in under it. The, the plan was, you see, to reach out your two arms as far as you could at each side and bring them slowly along the bank underneath until you feel the throat. When you feel the throat, you were to rope him and tickle him nice and soft and he wouldn't go from you. But if you squeeze your hands, he was gone like a sneaky lightning. So we'd rope him and tickle him and shove him along and there's always a little place underneath the bank where the throat is well, he has a hole in the mud at one side and a hole out the other. If you could get him to that, you had him safe and sound inside. But if you had him in the open water and you still wanted to catch him, you keep massaging him up along and rubbing him and you get near his gills. And that you squeezed in just behind the ear, you had him. And now you'd put him and throw him out in the bank and he'd be lipping there for five minutes. <laughs> but man, well, now we'd have five or six of them collected. You see, we used to make what we call a hank of rushes. You'd put five or six rushes side by side together and in through their gills. Eh? In through one ear, now in through the other ear. And every fellow would be coming home swinging his hanky of uh, throat, and he'd be very proud. And it'd lad, you know, now about the length of your, half the length of your hand, it'd be a nice little throat. Fell in the full length of your hand, it'd be an enormous throat. And the lad, they'd go a couple of inches above the wrist, or he'd be supposed to be a monster. We had a name for a while, they were in the category, this age time we got. If hunger overtook one fishing or hunting, there were the pig nut, and the cuckoo sorrel, blackberries, and hers in season. In picking the hordes, we became so adept at it that we knew exactly, we could even, at a distance, we could tell you where you'd get hordes. And we had certain a certain route that you'd travel today. Well, you wouldn't go back picking there again for another week until the next lot would be ripe. But each place you went, we had a, a special designation for it. Well, Cooney's Valley was... One day's outing. Jimmy DeWire's ditch was another day. Connie De Heel's hill. And, and so on. And when you had gone to those places, you went back then again to Cooney's Valley the next day, and so on. So that you always had a, a fresh supply. Gathering the horrors was part of the ancient festival of Lunasa. The enthusiastic pickers scarcely knew they were doing what had been done for over 2,000 years. Neither did they know that they were growing to manhood at a time which saw the end of so many other things, of the wake, the pishogues of butter-stealers, the scythe,
the lazy beds on hillsides, the end of untarred roads and bare feet to school. <laughs>